Good morning, Mike, and welcome to the Low Carb Paleo Show. Yeah, thank you very much for having me here. I greatly appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Thank you very much for showing up. And uh, good morning, Mark. Good morning, gentlemen. I hope you are wonderfully well. Doing good. I am, I am. Super. Uh, so, Mark, um, you have a PhD in exercise physiology, a BA in natural science, and an MS in biomechanics. You're also an adjunct professor and a member of the American College of Sports Medicine. So, um, can you tell us your, your, your story? How did you come to where you are now? And uh, what was your defining moment? Yeah, I think that I'd, I'd always really been interested in exercise physiology. Um, not so much that I was a great athlete. I was actually a horrible athlete. I, when I, if you had a choice of picking someone like in uh, grade school, you know, to play on your team, they'd you know, split you up between this team and that team. And you had someone who had like a broken ankle and Coke bottle glasses, you would pick that person before me. Like yeah. if you, you had the option of playing without me, that would have been like much, much better. Um, <laughs> and at the time I thought, well, I don't know, I'm just a, a bad athlete, you know, it just, you know, it just happens. Um, so I think that's also why I was interested in exercise physiology. It's like, well, how can you train? How can you get better? So I did my a Bachelor of Arts in Natural Science, but I didn't really know what I wanted to do with a physiology degree. So at that time they said, oh, well, you know, biomedical engineering, biomechanics type stuff was interesting. So I'm like, oh, okay, well, I guess there's, you know, professions that you can do that. So I then went to uh, Michigan Tech in the UP of Michigan, did two years postgraduate there, two and a half years for my master's. And I graduated, I started working for a biomed company. So actually in cardiac physiology, which was interesting because I actually had uh, open heart surgery when I was four and a half years old. Oh, wow. was called uh, atrial septal defect. Your hearts, you know, most people are probably listening already know this, but heart's got four chambers. Top two are the atrium, the bottom two are the ventricle. And I had a hole between the atrium, the top two chambers. So the oxygenated and deoxygenated blood kept mixing. And so my heart actually got really large. So when I was four, my heart was the size of someone who was 18. So I went in and this was back in 1978 where, you know, those kind of procedures on young kids were just not very common and they closed it up and, you know, 10 days in the hospital and luckily I've never had any issues since then. Um, but I think back that, oh, probably no coincidence that, you know, fast forward many years later, I work for a, a biomedical company that uh, does implantable pacemakers and defibrillators. Mm -hmm. So I did that for a while and then I thought, well, I'm never going back to school, you know, eight years of college, that's, that, that's enough. And that lasted about two years when I realized the company I was working for, they said, oh, well, if you go back to school, we'll pay for your school. I'm like, oh, okay. So I started doing that part-time in a PhD program in biomedical engineering. And I got all the way to finishing the classwork except for two classes. And I just really didn't want to do any more math. And I would spend all my free time learning physiology. I would go to physiology conferences and just sit in the back and people are like, oh, I said, oh, you guys are, are trainers, right? They said, yeah. I said, oh, you must have seen this one study about this or that. And they're like, mm, no. I'm like, oh, but what about this other study? And they're like, mm, no. I'm like, but you're, you're trainers, you're at a, a conference here. Don't you read research? They're like, no, that's why we're at the conference here. They're like, what are you doing here? I said, oh, this is just cool. This is fun. Um, so after I had a, decided I didn't want to do math anymore, dropped out of the PhD program there, I went over to exercise physiology because I thought, oh, that was great. No more math. <clears throat> this is what I want to do. This will be fun. And the first day I sit down, my advisor looks at everyone and he goes, hey, we have two new projects, one's on heart rate variability and one's on metabolic flexibility, and they both involve a fair amount of math. And mm -hmm. he looks around, he points at me at the end of the table, he goes, hey, you, new math boy, whatever your name is, these are your projects. I was like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Um, but so it worked out, so I spent another seven and a half years uh, doing that. And then before I had switched over, I actually started uh, training people just on the side, you know, more or less for, for fun. And then, you know, most of right after I'd started my PhD, I uh, started doing it as a business. My goal was to 
leave the, the medical uh, device company and then just do that uh, full time. Uh, so I left there about three and a half years ago now. So I just do primarily online training. I do some certifications. <clears throat> I'm a faculty member at the Kerrigan Institute. So we've got a very cool program coming out through them. That's a graduate level online uh, teaching program for exercise physiology. So for people who want a uh, program in physiology, but also want the more practical side. So I think the kind of the big defining moment was the blinding flash of the obvious I had when so I'm like, oh, if, I, if I do a PhD in exercise physiology, I'm not really sure I want to teach. Other than that, I don't know what I would do with a PhD in exercise physiology. I, I definitely don't need that to be a trainer. And then I realized I'm like, oh, well, I already have a master's in engineering. I could just keep doing that the rest of my life if I had to. Like, oh, okay. So not really much of a, a downside. And then it uh, kind of worked out to my favor. Right. So uh, for people that are not familiar with the, um, this environment, what is exercise physiology compared to like regular exercise type of, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty similar. Um, so usually if you look in academia, the big dividing line is usually physiology versus exercise physiology. And it's a good question because you're like, well, what the heck is the difference? And physiology generally at rest is eh, not that exciting, right? But now if we apply exercise, so we apply a stimulus, now we see all sorts of things change from cardiac parameters to just simple, you know, blood flow goes up, you know, huge amounts, vessel function changes. So by studying the changes from rest to like high end after a stimulus gives us a lot of information. Right, so people who may have cardiac issues, we can then have them do an exercise stress test. Right, we'll put 12 lead EKG on them, we'll have them do a max exercise test, we'll really stress the cardiac system and we'll see what'll happen there. And a lot of times you'll see things there that you would never find at rest. So, and then you can get into also in different performance uh, aspects of it too. And even uh, longevity. So like the top three things that are related to longevity are all performance metrics. So VO2 max, uh, what's your aerobic performance, uh, lower body strength, and then grip strength. So those are <clears throat> kind of the top three. So even from a longevity standpoint, uh, exercise performance is related to that too. So you mentioned um, to me earlier that you're coming to uh, paleo effects. So should, yeah. I assume, should I assume that you follow the paleo diet? Um, I do for the most part. Um, I think there's some, you know, confusion what actually is a paleo diet, but mm -hmm. the, the viewpoint that I look at it, so I look at it from a lens of kind of metabolic flexibility, probably because that's mm -hmm. what my research area was, uh, which is real simply how well does your body use carbohydrates and how well does your body use fat? How well can you switch back and forth between them? So I think if we look at like an uh, evolutionary or ancestral viewpoint, it gives us a really good starting point to go, okay, huh, this is where we had to operate then. Maybe our physiology hasn't changed all that much, so that's gonna be a little bit better. So if you're, you know, old school paleo man and you're out, you know, hunting woolly mammoth and you can't find one for a couple of days, you probably better be pretty good at fasting, right? So the ability mm -hmm. to use fat as a fuel, but cognitive performance and everything else has to still be pretty good or you're not gonna have any chance of finding the woolly mammoth. Um, if you're wandering through and you find a bunch of honey, you're probably going to eat as much of it as you can possibly want until you get stung enough you don't want anymore, right? You're not really going to pass it up and go, eh, I don't need any of those evil carbohydrates. But they're also very scarce, right? You couldn't get reams of carbohydrates like you can now, like super easily for cheap. Um, yeah. So how well could your body use that kind of bolus or that influx of carbohydrates without, you know, passing out underneath the honey hive in an insulin-induced stupor, right? Um, so I think it's how do you operate between both? The, the problem with more modern society is that we're, we're not as active, right? So we don't exercise as much, we don't move as much, and now it's super easy to find carbohydrates everywhere. So I think it's easier for people to become more kind of intolerant on that side. Um, so I like looking at it from that lens of going, okay, 
Can you fast for a period of time and still do pretty good? Could you have some carbohydrates and still do pretty good? And those are the kind of the two extreme ends of it. You know, in the middle, you eat kind of what looks more like a paleo type diet, you know, more protein, you know, vegetables, some fat, you know, some carbohydrates, things of that nature. So um, I've noticed that uh, the past couple of years, there seems to be a, um, a slight shift to, towards a keto diet. Is that yeah. uh, where you're going as well? Uh, I think it's super <coughs> interesting, but I think the question then is, what is your goal? So the first question, right? So someone comes up to me and goes, hey, you know, I, I, I should do a ketogenic diet. What do you think? I'm like, well, I don't know. What, what do you want to do? Right. If you're someone who says, I don't really like uh, high intensity exercise all that much. Yeah. I want to try to get in better, a little bit metabolic health. I'm not going to do formal exercise, but I can go walk the dogs in the morning. Yeah. I think a ketogenic diet could be a good approach uh, for that. Um, again, the caveat being make sure that if you are going to do a ketogenic diet, you're actually doing it correctly. Right, because a lot of people, especially in the fitness space, their protein will be too high and their fats will normally be too low. And then they get stuck in this metabolic, what I call the metabolic no man zone, where your carbs are below 50, your protein's relatively high, and your fat's not really high enough. So you can't really shift all the way down to using ketones, but your carbs are so low, you're not really using a lot of uh, carbohydrates either. Um, but if you're someone who says, I want to be a CrossFit Games competitor, or I want to be a strong man or strong woman competitor, and I want to get the highest performance I possibly can in a sport that's using a crap ton of carbohydrates, yeah, a ketogenic approach is not going to be your best friend um, because, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't add up. Um, even if your ketone levels are super high, I don't think they can compete with the power output you can get uh, from carbohydrates. Uh, we do also know that if you're on a ketogenic type diet for a long period of time, you start losing the, the ultra high end of carbohydrate metabolism. And that's probably a PDH enzyme changes. But you know, you're looking at single digit percentages, right? It's not like you can't use any carbohydrates at all. But if you want to be a very competitive athlete in those types of sports, that makes a big difference. If you're like, oh, I just go to the gym and train, you know, a couple of days per week. I like performance to be good, but it's not my top metric. Eh, not as much of a, a concern at that point. Um, what I do find very fascinating is that I think the ketogenic diet or a ketogenic state or ketosis is actually the survival backup system to metabolism. Meaning that you can take someone who's been doing the standard American diet, living on you know, donuts and 7-Eleven Slurpees with no ice, and have them fast for, say, four or five days. They're probably going to hate you, and it's not going to be fun. They're not going to die, right? And they will actually go into ketosis, even though they've probably never been there a single day in their entire life. Hmm. The fact that your body, from a metabolic standpoint, will conserve those pathways to such an extreme, even though they've never been exercised. Um, to me, I find that very fascinating. And then also on the neurologic side, uh, maybe, you know, post TBI, traumatic brain injury, other uh, neurologic things. I think ketogenic diet may be extremely useful for that. Uh, we know like an epilepsy, you look at stuff from the Charlie Foundation, you know, ketogenic diet is incredibly useful um, for that, for controlling seizures. So I find it super interesting. I think the biggest question is, you know, what is your goal and what are you trying to do? If you're not going to burn through a ton of uh, carbohydrates doing your sport and you're not trying to be ultra competitive, uh, I think it can be an option. Uh, but then again, you know, work with someone to make sure that you're doing it correctly and, you know, still having vegetables and other things like that too. Because I, what I've seen is people want to just eat a ton of fat and nothing else, and then do that for a couple of weeks, and they're like, oh, I don't feel very good, I don't know what's going on, and then they just kind of quit. It's like, mm -hmm. if you're going to go that route, you know, make sure you do it in an intelligent fashion. Right, so for athletes that, you know, um, like you said, uh, need some carbohydrates, what kind of carbohydrates would you uh, suggest then? Uh, I mean, obviously I'm biased to mostly having whole foods, um, you know, you know, and then not being afraid of necessarily starchy carbohydrates either. Uh, so a lot of the, the plans I do for athletes look like, you know, 
sweet potatoes, normal potatoes, rice, bananas, plantains, you know, that kind of stuff. Again, depends on the athlete and how many carbohydrates they need too. You know, if you're really pushing, let's say weight training, you know, three to five days per week and you're going pretty hard, you're metabolically healthy, you move around a lot, you're getting eight, 10,000 steps a day. Yeah, you can get by with, you know, 200 or 300 grams of carbs a day and be perfectly fine. You know, if you sit in an office all day, don't exercise much, yeah, I don't think putting a ton of carbohydrates through your system is going to be your best choice either. Um, and now there's cool technology, like if you've seen the continuous uh, glucose monitors. So I just had one done a while ago. There's this little tiny disc you put on the muscle, and there's this tiny little pinprick that goes inside. And it'll stay on for about two weeks, and it'll take a reading of blood glucose every five minutes. Oh, wow. At the end of two weeks, I got the data back, and so you can see exactly where your blood glucose is. And in my case, you know, I could eat a fair amount of carbohydrates and it never really went over 120. Um, in other people's cases, you know, that amount of carbohydrates, they would be in a world of hurt. You'd see these massive excursions up and then you'd see them become a little bit more hypoglycemic right after. So I find that carbohydrates as to macronutrient tend to vary the most from one person to the next. You know, most people handle protein pretty well, other than, you know, some weird intolerances. Most people handle fat pretty well for the most part. Mm -hmm. But I've seen carbohydrate tolerance just very widely from one person to the next. Right, right. So the important point here is that uh, if you're going to eat carbohydrates, make sure they are fresh, healthy, natural, not processed, not artificial, none of that crap, right? Yeah, I mean, that would be my bias as to where people would start. Um, again, if you're one of those people that can use higher amounts of carbohydrates, yeah, at some point, I think having a few Pop-Tarts shouldn't kill you either. You know, does, mm. <laughs> does that mean you want to live on Pop-Tarts all day? No. Mm. Um, but I did a few ex tests where I had two Pop-Tarts in the morning just to see what would happen. You know, it's like 80 grams of extremely processed to hell and back glucose. And it did okay. Again, does that mean I'm going to go out and eat Pop-Tarts for every meal? No, right? I'm going to see how far to the far end of that spectrum I can go and just kind of stress test the system and see if it's, you know, okay. Um, but I think I do agree that the problem with most people is that if you're eating highly refined carbohydrates, eh, maybe the carbohydrate, it may be that you're not able to use it that well. But then you're also missing micronutrients and other things we know are extremely beneficial for health. And it's also very easy to be in a caloric surplus by doing that also. Um, so I think that's kind of more of the main downsides. Right, right. So um, what made you uh, switch to the paleo diet? Uh, were you always kind of eating that way or at one point you decided to uh, explore that? Yeah, I guess I just kind of always ended up sort of eating that way, I guess. Um, and if you look at it, it looks like a just very nice, healthy diet, right? A fair amount of protein, some good healthy fats, lots of vegetables, a few fruits here and there. <clears throat> and again, depending on your training load, maybe you add a few more carbohydrates and rice, mm -hmm. potatoes, things of that nature. And that looks very, you know, paleo-like. Um, so I like using that as a, a template for, for most clients. And it's things that's pretty easy for them to get. And I think most people kind of inherently know that that's going to be a little bit better approach. Um, so I just kind of, yeah, I guess I was not to be one of those people, but I was kind of doing it before paleo was a thing. But, you know, you could say that by a lot of people. But I, yeah. I do like that I get questions now of people that will pick up, you know, like Rob Bull's book and other books. And for them, that's like earth shatteringly brand new stuff. They're like, Oh my God. And I'm like, yeah, if you, you know, move towards that diet, you're definitely going to be moving in a better direction. So that's great. Right. So, um, would you consider yourself to be a, a biohacker? Uh, probably, but I don't, I don't like the term hack. <laughs> <laughs> I, Cause it, I know what it is and I've studied HRV for like 11 years now and I've, I've done my HRV on myself for almost six and a half years now. I've done it daily on clients for five years and 
I find the whole area just fascinating and the stuff you can do now and especially with a lot of uh, consumer grade stuff uh, showing up before even medical grade. Like so the guys who did the, the halo, which is direct, uh, basically current, you're kind of z zapping your brain. Or they were kind of told by the FDA to make it a consumer grade product and to not do another medical grade product because they could get it on the market a lot faster. Mm. That has pros and cons. But what you're seeing is a lot of pretty high-end consumer-grade stuff showing up now that you don't really need a medical license or other things for. Again, that has a, a pro and con associated with it too. But it, it's also interesting to me that a lot of those things are trying to get people back to more of an ancestral viewpoint anyway, right? So if you're using a human charger to put you know, light into your ears or using, you know, blue wave things to generate light into your eyes, or you're trying to sleep in specific ways, you're really trying to get back to what we did before, paradoxically, without any technology. Mm. Um, so, again, I think those things can definitely be useful depending on where you're at. But I always like to walk clients through the process of, if you want to spend something to put blue light in your eyes, that's fine. But how often do you get outside in the morning? How about you just go for a walk first? Yeah. You know, or, you know, if you live in a climate like I do in northern Minnesota where you're not getting a lot of vitamin D in the winter, I could run around buck naked in the winter and I'm not getting any vitamin D, then, yeah, using vitamin D as a supplement, probably beneficial. You know, if you're in the tropics, just go outside more, get out of your cube. Um, mm -hmm. So I like the concepts. I like the ideas. I do use a fair amount of it. I've tested all sorts of stuff. I just got a uh, moxie device to let me look at uh, muscle oxygen levels during exercise and I think it's super interesting and very useful but again I think look back to see what are other things you can do in place of that and if you're not able to do those things then yeah I think using technology can be a good thing the only other caveat I would add is look to monitor things so you know if there's a difference so I really like using baseline heart rate variability, which looks at stress levels, to know that, oh, okay, I'm using XYZ biohack to increase my parasympathetic tone. All right, cool. Does it stay? Does it go up? Does it change? You know, you want a, a baseline measure to determine if the things you're doing are moving you in a positive direction or not. Hmm. But my preference is if people are going to add technology is use technology to more accurately map their baseline and to see any changes first instead of just randomly picking stuff to see, oh, I feel better, I don't. It's an okay metric to start. Um, but if you're trying to change stress levels, I would buy a thing to monitor HRV, do that every morning first, and then play around with different interventions and see what's going to happen. What is HRV? Yeah, so HRV is a heart rate variability. And if we look at heart rate, we can get some pretty good data from just looking at average heart rate. We know that as stress levels go up or we do more movement, heart rate is going to go up. So heart rate variability is looking at these very small movements from one what they call R wave to the next. So one contraction to the next. And we find that this very small fine scale variability, so how much they're just moving around a little bit, is a marker for health. So if we have someone who sits in a chair and I'm in the lab and their heart rate is 70.1, 70.2, 70.0, 70.1, let's say their average is about 70, but there's not much variation from one of those beats to the next compared to someone who is 70.1, 73.2, 69.8, their average may come out to be 70 again, but they've got this little bit of this fine scale variability and we find that that's a marker for health. So that fine scale variability is a marker for parasympathetic tone. So you've got your autonomic nervous system that has two branches. One branch is a parasympathetic and one is a sympathetic. So you can think of the parasympathetic like the brake on your car. If I push down on the brake harder, the car is going to slow down, right? So increasing parasympathetic tone I'm pushing the brake on the car and my heart rate is going to slow down. It's going to be more of a relaxed state. Sympathetic is like pushing on the gas pedal. I push down on the gas pedal harder, heart rate goes up in response to stress. Mm -hmm. So HRV gives us a nice monitor of how much is parasympathetic versus sympathetic 
by looking at this fine scale variability. And the other nice part is that with, you know, modern technology, you can just, you know, run it on your uh, little phone with just a heart rate strap. I use the iFleet system. So instead of athlete, it's iFleet. And you just do it once in the morning and you can then compare one day to the next and you can see effects of, you know, training and sleep and nutrition. It gives you a pretty good idea to see, you know, are you kind of on track or are you kind of getting a little bit more off track? Right. I find it interesting uh, the difference between the American way of looking at things versus the European where Americans tend to use a lot of gadgets and measure every single, yes. um, you know, and where these gizmos and gadgets, uh, you know, everywhere, which, you know, could affect your health in a way with the radiation and so on versus Europeans that just kind of take a pretty relaxed you know, approach to it and I don't seem to obsess too much about it. It's like, you know, enjoy the good life, um, relax, you know, get downtime, sleep well, eat well, you know, and but they don't measure everything unless they're yeah. professional, you know. Um, how, I mean, how do you explain, I understand that Americans tend to be more, probably more technology oriented, but how do you explain the, the difference between uh, the two approaches. Yeah, and I've noticed the same thing. I've been in Europe a bunch of times, and the first time I was over there in, in Germany, it was just like, oh, yeah, people go to work, but hey, we walk every day to go to the store. We walk here, we go there. I'm like, but you have a car. No, no, we always walk to the store. Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, it's not, you know, at the time, I'm thinking, well, this is madness. What are you walking a half a mile to the store? But that's just what they did. I'm like, but you go there every day? Well, yeah, because we get fresher food every day. Oh, mm -hmm. really? Like, I'm so used to like, you go to the store once a week, you drive mm -hmm. there. But that was just more of the whole culture, you know, because, oh, the person, the baker comes in, drops off the bread. Oh, the cheese person drops off the cheese. You get milk delivered to your doorstep. And then once you were done with work, you were done. Like, you didn't stress about anything. It gets dark. You go to sleep. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it was, um, I think the biggest thing I noticed was like the overall pace was just, much slower, much more relaxed. People didn't seem to stress out about a lot of stuff. Um, or in America, I think a lot of it is very dopamine goal orientated, stress driven. Like you, you take someone from a small town in some places of Europe and you drop them off in New York City. It's like, holy crap. You know, people are just running them over, you know, trying to get to the, <laughs> the, the next place. And New York City even just for me drives me insane still. Uh, fun right. to visit, but I could never live there. So I, yeah. my gut feeling is that I think a lot of it is just the overall stress of, and I also did notice that, and again, it's a generalization, but in the U.S., people seem to be more driven by uh, objects and getting whatever the next fancy car or next thing is, not necessarily to use it for something, but to have it be more of a status symbol where I didn't, mm -hmm see that as much in Europe and again it's a generalization but right, I think right. it, there's a lot of people in the U.S. that are very stressed out to try to get something that they think will make them happier or I think if they try to have more experiences and have a comparison of something that's different um, mm -hmm. so I do some work with uh, Dr. Ben House who's in uh, Costa Rica he actually moved down there and they had a retreat down there last year. So we went down there and I was teaching with a bunch of other people. And it was amazing to just get completely in a different environment. It was in the middle of the jungle. We had all the food made, much more relaxed. We you know, go for a hike for, or surf for like two or three hours in the afternoon. And just to get people out of their normal environment and out of all that other you know, stimulation, then they can feel different. They're like, oh. Yeah, yeah. You know, by the end of the four days, they're like, wow, this, this actually feels so much better. So when they go back home, they're like, oh, wow, this is like pretty crazy. But if you're always in the crazy, you can't, you don't never really notice, <laughs> right? Right. Yeah. Yes, uh, I can tell you from experience, just uh, recently came back from France and I have never walked as much as, yeah. you know, uh, over there. Then I, of course, granted, I didn't have a car, but... Uh, it 
everyone walks everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For my sister to walk a half a mile to do the groceries every day is nothing. That's nothing. Yeah. That's, ah. <laughs> it's like, it's like next do. door, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. uh, the first time of, uh, a few years ago when I went shopping with her, uh, she said, oh, it's just a little bit away. And it's like 30 minutes later, we were still walking. <laughs> and it was, you know. So uh, I, I definitely see you know, where people get, even without thinking about it or without, uh, so I have to walk. No, it's just, uh, that's what they do. That's what yeah, they do. It, it, it's, it is kind of fascinating to me that I have to put a Fitbit on some people just to get them aware of how little they move. And I'm just right. as guilty of that. I mean, I was finishing my PhD and I just got a, a Fitbit type watch. And so I put it on and I tried not to look at the step count at all. I wasn't in the lab that day. I didn't have any clients. So I was primarily just at home doing research. I didn't wear it when I trained, but I, you know, just went to my garage gym and lifted. Um, you know, by the end of the day, I had 835 steps. I'm like, holy crap, that's horrible. That's like, you know, cardiac transplant patients move more than that in the hospital, mm -hmm. you know, and that I realized also that by not really going out of my home that much, it's almost impossible to get that many steps, you know? So by changing and expanding your environment where if your only option to get food is to go to the store, we're obviously going to walk more. Right. right. But right. I think technology can be good to increase the level of awareness. So then over time, you know, and it honestly took probably two years where, you know, now my average is you know, 8,000, 10,000 a day. But to do that, it's become part of my lifestyle where I get up, I go for a walk. If I'm doing phone calls, I'm usually walking. I've had to kind of build it into my lifestyle consciously where now it's kind of kind of a habit so i think the technology can be useful to provide that level of awareness to show people data and be like hey you know even with hrv i've had people come in who are just like nope i'm not stressed not stressed not stressed very not stressed at all i'm really really not stressed and i'm like mm -hmm. you sound like you're incredibly stressed nope 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 not me not me you know and you show them the data and they're like oh oh wow that's that's kind of crazy. And then because yeah, I'm not stressed, feel better and less stressed. And they're like, Oh, yeah, I was really stressed. <laughs> right, right. So you're, you're for an assortment of services to your clients. Can you describe your services? Yeah, so I do mostly online, actually almost all online. I do see some people in person once in a while. I converted my uh, garage to a gym. Um, so I do some in-person uh, hands-on uh, work, which is more tissue movement type work. Um, but for most of them, I do their training, right? So usually people have some type of performance metric or body composition, they're usually more of an intermediate level. And so they're pretty familiar with exercise and lifting, you know, how to exactly program it, maybe not so much. Um, and then do their nutrition, right? So making sure their nutrition actually matches their exercise. Because I've seen a lot of, you know, pretty good exercise programs. I've seen some pretty good nutrition programs. But when you try to put the two together, you're like, clearly the person you're working with never thought about putting these two together, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to, you know, train for CrossFit and I'm going to do ketogenic. You know, nothing wrong with either one of them by themselves. But, you know, trying to put them together is not going to go so well. Mm -hmm. So do their nutrition to make sure that all uh, matches with their goals. And then I also do a lot of uh, lifestyle stuff. So looking at their overall lifestyle, looking at their stress, I include uh, heart rate variability as a marker to determine that. So they may be doing, you know, walks or some type of meditation or just simple stuff like, you know, I've, it's weird to me that I have to program and tell some people, I want you to do one to two fun things per week. Like if you love playing racquetball, I want you to go play racquetball. Really? Yeah, why not? You know, but, you know, back to, Everything sometimes has to be programmed out that you sometimes have to make a requirement for someone to do something like that or, you know, having more time by themselves, whether it's prayer or meditation or reading or, or you know, whatever. Hmm. And then uh, monitoring of that. And so each week they have to turn everything in with the things that they're monitoring. And then I also do uh, at-home blood tests that looks at essential fatty acids. So it's a home test where they prick their finger and bleed on a little piece of paper you send it in and then that'll send me a score back to them and I'll tell all their uh, lipids. So if you want to look at saturated, unsaturated, you want to look at uh, EPA and DHA, so fish oils or DGLA, and it'll tell you what all those are. And it'll also tell you the red blood cell content. 
So some people may have a whole blood level as a fish oil, so EPA and DHA that are good, but we really want to know what, how much of that makes it into the cell membrane. And if their membrane content is not matching, uh, now I usually refer them to a functional med person or something to figure out what's going on. Um, but, you know, if they're trying to make changes and their essential fats are just super low, you know, it's going to be pretty hard because you're missing some of the, the raw materials. And again, it's easy to change, right? Just by changing the amount of uh, types of dietary fat that they have, or even just increasing all of them. Mm -hmm. Good. Sounds interesting. So, um, in, in my understanding, you also, um, training the trainers. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I do. So even like my private clients that are online right now, about half of them are actually trainers. And I think, I mean, I even hired a trainer, you know, cause it's like, eh, the stuff I know I should be doing, I should be doing more low intensity, long duration cardiovascular stuff. Yeah, but it's boring and I just don't like it that much. So I didn't do it. <laughs> um, but you know, to pay someone to be like, okay, here's what you need to do, you know, strength train two to three days a week, you know, do this type of cardio and to have the accountability I find is super useful. And then with those clients, they kind of learn by doing also. So they're working on themselves. And then if they have questions about clients they're working with, then they can ask through that process too. And then I created a flex diet certification, which is kind of a mashup between uh, flexible dieting and metabolic flexibility. So it's a series of uh, eight different modules. Well, each module has about three videos of, okay, here's the theory. And then here's the intervention. And then here's the actual action items you would have clients do with that. So I said, okay, if I look at the huge big picture and I've got only eight interventions that I can do with a client, what would those eight be? And then how would I rank them, right? So the number one would be obviously the highest. And in the past, I had done something similar, but I only ranked them based on physiologic effect. So this time I said, okay, I'm going to look at physiologic effect and also psychological effect, right? So a perfect example is sleep. We can make lots of great arguments that physiologically sleep is probably near the top in terms of what happens when we don't get it. Metabolism gets all goofy, things like that. But I found getting people to sleep more is really hard. You know, can you do it? Yeah, but it's not easy. Um, so that would actually be lower. But something like, you know, more like a paleo type thing where you're eating more dietary protein right? So we eat whole meals. If you can get grass-fed beef, even better. Fish, chicken, you know, some dairy if you can handle it. That was much easier for people to do. And we know that it's almost impossible to eat, you know, too much protein. People looking at body comp changes, we know it's beneficial for that. So the number one intervention then was uh, protein. But then ranked them kind of one um, through eight. So each one of the modules walks them through uh, the big picture, that specific intervention, and then, so say number one is protein. What are kind of the five action items you would have people do with protein? You know, so one of them is, you know, have 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up in the morning, right? Or get, you know, your body weight times 0.7 grams of protein per day. And then the client would then rank the, or the coach would rank the client on just compliance on those. Hmm. Trying to get them the overall uh, viewpoint uh, some specific information on the intervention and then making it easy for the coach or the trainer uh, to work with the client on the items that they specifically uh, need. Mm. Um, you also have a podcast called Iron Radio. What are your favorite subjects? Yeah, so Iron Radio is like, a, I call it the, the meatheads versus the eggheads. And so we have kind of both. <laughs> program. <laughs> um, it was started by my buddy, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, who's been doing it for I think almost seven years now. So back almost before podcasting was really a big deal. Mm. And so he's on there myself and then I coach Phil Stevens. So it's a wide range of sometimes us just rambling. We did one recently on what are our fitness predictions for 2018. Uh, we'll have everything from you know, high level academics. We've had guys like uh, Stu Phillips on talking about protein metabolism to, you know, high ranking uh, power lifters, Olympic lifters, strongman, um, even some of the uh, psychological components on there with different counselors and things of that nature. So yeah, it's kind of a, 
a mix up of you know people who are into kind of the iron sports physical culture but a little bit more from a practical and kind of scientific academic angle cool cool so you speak at seminars all over the world uh what will you speak about at paleo fx 2018 yeah so paleo fx i believe i'm doing the top five myths about dietary protein um, so, you know, how much protein do you need? Is, you know, protein going to be bad for you? What I'm kind of seeing now is a little bit of backlash against protein. There's some people who are like, oh, no, you got to only eat plant protein and you've got to, you know, make sure you don't get too much protein. And ah, I'm not really entirely sold on that data. You know, maybe for environmental reasons, things like that. Eh, that's not my area. You may be able to make a little bit better argument there, but you know, like kidney, kidney issues is a thing that never seems to go away. When I teach exercise, phys and nutrition, I tell students, I'm like, Hey, I'll give you extra credit. If you can find a peer reviewed piece of literature that shows a dietary protein is harmful to your kidneys and healthy people. So far after about six years of doing this, nobody's come up with anything. Hmm. Um, my buddy, Dr. Joey Antonio, even went as high as I think 300 plus grams of protein in lifters for weeks and weeks on end, ran a whole bunch of specific kidney markers. I even looking at like microalbumin. So looking to see, is there any damage to the kidneys? Uh, Cause we will see kidney work goes up like a glomerular filtration rate, things of that nature. Um, they're all perfectly fine. So yeah, your kidneys will do a little bit more work. You know, do you need to eat that much protein eh, for muscle repair? Probably not. But is it dangerous? Nah, not really. So, yeah, so talking all about dietary protein there. Right, right. Um, okay, last question for me. How can we find information about you and your work? Yeah, so the best way is just to go to the website, which is MikeTNelson.com. So M-I-K-E-T-N-E-L-S-O-N. I've got articles, a bunch of other information there. And then the best way is through my newsletter. There'll be a way you can opt into the newsletter at the top. Uh, most of my content goes out through the newsletter. So if people liked what they heard, they can sign up uh, there. And then the certification is there'll be a link also on the website coming up with that. And they can get that through the newsletter. Um, or they can just go to flexdiet.com. F-L-E-X-D-I-E-T.com. Great. Mark? Super. Uh, yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of interesting stuff from you, Mike, so thank you for that. There's a couple of things that stood out for me. Um, earlier when you were talking about, you know, if you're sort of a fat person who was a donut eater and so forth, um, <laughs> went on a fast for four days that they were going to ketosis and it wouldn't do them any harm. Um, so that just struck the question, and I've, I've Heard some people advocate it before. I wondered what your take on it was. Is fasting a good way to start a low-carb or a paleo diet? Uh, I would say yes. So I'm a pretty big fan of intermittent fasting for body composition and possibly health. Or health. And by intermittent fasting, just meaning a period of time where you're not eating anything. Yeah. Because uh, intermittent fasting now has, oh, is it a 16A? Is it 24 hours? Is, you know, there's all different yeah. modified types of versions. If you look in the literature and just type intermittent fasting in the uh, PubMed, you'll even sometimes get things that are like 800 calorie per day and alternate day fasting. And so mm -hmm. I just think fasting, a period of time where you're not consuming anything that has calories. Okay. Does that, does that mean between snacks would count? Yeah. Yeah. So people are, <laughs> but the joke I make is that people come to me and they go, oh, 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 that's horrible. No way I could You were fasted for eight hours, probably longer because you probably didn't eat right before you went to bed, probably didn't eat breakfast the second you got up. So you've already did a, a 10 hour yeah. fast and they're like, oh, I guess that's not too bad. Um, so what I'll have people do is my preference is slowly have them work up to one day where they don't eat anything for 19 to 24 hours. So if you would start on an off day from training, let's say Monday, and you normally do 10 hours pretty easy, that's okay, Monday coming up, I just want you to do 12 hours. So take your breakfast, push it out two hours, eat the exact same amount of food. 
And the following week, you either take breakfast and put that in place of lunch, so you'll drop lunch, and try to go 14 hours, right? So you're gonna end up dropping a meal at that point. Following week, try to go 16 hours. If it doesn't work so well, go back to 14. And I find by having to be more progressive that that makes it a lot easier for people to handle. And then usually evening to evening is better. So if your last meal was Sunday night at 7 p.m., having dinner with your family Monday night, and you can get about a 20-hour fast by doing that. Um, so usually I find that that works better. The, the reason I like it is I found fasting is easier for people to do than trying to have a super low-calorie day. I don't know why that is. I think it's more a psychological thing. Or once you start eating, you feel like you want to eat more, and then you're more hungry. And so I find that that's usually easier. I do like pushing insulin levels lower. Mm -hmm. So if you have someone who glucose insulin is kind of hosed up a little bit, by fasting, you're now removing any food that are coming in. And over 18 hours, you'll see insulin will just kind of bottom out. So yeah. I do like driving insulin levels further down. Uh, that does have a benefit of increasing the body's use of fat as a fuel. Uh, there is some literature to show that if you just take people off the street, put them on a, in the metabolic uh, testing, and we just look at how well they're using fats or carbohydrates at rest or low intensity exercise, the variability on that is like 20 to 93%. Uh, hmm. That was a study I did, one from Helge and one from Gadecki. And what that means is that some people at rest or low intensity exercise are already really good at using fat, which is what you want to do under that condition. Some people are still burning a lot of carbohydrates. Not necessarily bad, but now if you give them a carbohydrate challenge, a lot of times they don't do so well either. So they can't really go from using carbs in this end to using fat and then back and forth. They're metabolically inflexible. Mm -hmm. So I like fasting as a, a bigger sort of metabolic hammer independent of exercise where you're removing the calories, you're driving insulin down lower, and it's just an easy way to cut out a fair amount of calories too. So you automatically end up in a, a caloric deficit by doing that. Excellent, excellent. Another thing I found quite fascinating was your, when you mentioned the, uh, the different types of uh, kit that are available now that are almost on you know, professional um, health level, at professional technical level for, you know, uh, caregivers and that sort of thing. Yeah. But they're, they're still in the consumer space. The thing that intrigued me most, I think, was the, um, the glucose monitor. You said this is a yeah. small disc. That you, yeah. yeah, it's a freestyle disc. And it's, um, so right now, depending on where you're at, the UK is a little bit different. But in the US, I think you still need a prescription from a physician to get one. Mm -hmm. That may change. There's supposedly a patient uh, version that's out now. Um, it's initially designed for uh, type 2 diabetics and people mm. especially on insulin because, unfortunately, they're notorious for only checking their blood glucose once or twice a day. Yeah. Now, yeah. And you'll see just uh, crazy stuff in between. Like if you talk to physicians who work with a lot of type 2 diabetics, so the thought was they would have their own reader. So if it's a patient version mm -hmm. and – they can then just scan it, right? So instead of pricking their finger, they can not only get a lot more measurement, a lot higher fidelity of data, they don't have to prick their finger all the time. They just take the device, whoop, scan the little disc, and it'll tell them um, exactly where they've been at and what's going on. Hmm. So what's interesting, I think, outside of a non-diabetic population, which eh, is kind of a gray area in terms of where the medical approval and stuff is at right now, is even in healthy people, uh, you'll see dramatically different variations. Yeah. Uh, so we did this in uh, Costa Rica also. We would see some people would have like a large amount of pineapple and their blood glucose would skyrocket and then drop. The person sitting next to them, yeah, not that big of a deal. And these are, you know, fairly healthy people who exercise a lot. Body comp is good. You, you wouldn't expect it in that population. Um, I know Rob Wolf has done a lot of uh, posting with him and his wife about different responses that they'll see on blood glucose and ketones. Um, there's a study in cell, I think two years ago now, where they looked at 800 different people, tried to quantify different uh, insulin and glucose levels, and even tried to tie that back into maybe gut biome or genetics or things like that. So I think as we get more and more uh, pretty accurate data that's uh, pretty high sampling point. So every five mm -hmm. minutes in this case, 
we'll see a lot more of this variability that we just never saw before. Yeah. So I think that's going to be the next thing that'll be pretty interesting. So you can kind of do your own self tests and say, Oh, if I have this or if I have that, do I see these, you know, kind of wild excursions or not? Um, if you look at um, blood markers, there's a blood marker called glycomark, um, which I originally got this uh, from Dr. Brian Walsh. And that's a blood marker that will kind of tell you, do you have these rapid excursions above in blood glucose that come back down? Hmm. Uh, so for example, my wife got some testing. Her HbA1c and fasting glucose were pretty good. HbA1c is about a rough three marker average of blood glucose. Uh, but her glycomark was not so good. So that would indicate that maybe she's having these super high excursions that go up and go down, and then she goes back to normal again. Hmm. So she's got one of the two-week uh, glucose monitors right now to see if that'll show up um, in that data. So, hmm. yeah, it's pretty fascinating. It is, it is. And useful, I take it. It's very useful. It's, the nice part is, again, it goes back to the compliance thing with technology. You literally just put it on, and you leave it for two weeks. So like I trained, I took a shower, I did mm -hmm. everything and it, it worked perfectly. So your compliance, right, is automatically 100% unless you get annoyed and try to scrape it off. Um, so <laughs> that's the other nice thing. And they're a little bit of a bugger to get off at the end, which is good. Um, so I think having that data and it's just doing it in the background all the time, I think is super useful. Excellent, what is, excellent. What, what is the name of that product? Uh, so right now, the main one is called uh, Libre Freestyle. Okay. And if you do a Google search, you can just type in uh, Continuous Glucose Monitor. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So right now in the U.S., you kind of have to get it through a, a physician, um, but that may change. There, I think the patient version should be coming out soon, whether that's going to be indicated for only type 2 people or not. I'm not sure, but... Mm -hmm. What'd you say, honey? They said, do they want to see how big it is? Oh, you want to see it? My wife has hers right here. Yeah, that'd be brilliant. She doesn't mind. <laughs> <laughs> she was standing over here doing this thing. This is a family-rated show now. No, yeah. no. All right, excellent. <laughs> There's a little disc right there. Right. Excellent. Yeah. 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 Just on the back of the tricep. It's quite fetching too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you get them little colors. You put little decals yeah, on yeah. them. I mean, you know, back in the 17th, 16th, 17th century, you used to have a beauty mark, you know. But, you know. Yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> you could put Thank it on you. your... <laughs> yeah, put it on your forehead. I, I got the yeah. Omega Wave little things that stick on my forehead, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, so, I guess we better sort of uh, look at the time a minute and um, think about finishing off. Can we finish off with sort of your your three uh, top tips, the three things that people should be doing in order to um, move their health forward by getting the most bang for the buck, as it were. Yeah. I mean, they're kind of basic, but I would say if I had to put a priority list on them, number one would be exercise movement, right? The more we learn, the more we learn how just powerful exercise is at changing a whole bunch of stuff. And that could be as simple as, you know, getting up, going for an AM walk to, formal exercise to recreation, playing a sport, things of that nature again. You know, mm -hmm. pretty common. Um, number two, I would say, is measuring heart rate variability mm -hmm. just to try to get a handle on your baseline stress level. Because what I've seen is that the people who need it the most are usually the most resistant to it because mm -hmm. they're maybe not ready to change where they're at. But right. I think having that monitor of knowing where you're at you can see is exercise a little bit too stressful, sleep, you know, nutrition changes, things of that nature. Excellent. Then, do, do you have a favorite bit of tech for that? Yeah, my favorite one is the iThlete system. So instead of athlete, it's just iThlete. So I-T-H-L-E-T-E. -E. Um, they're actually out of the, the UK over there. So I'm probably All not right. too far from you. I do. London. No, probably yeah. not. Yeah. And what's cool about that is that the equipment I used in the lab was probably like at least 10 grand to measure HRV. This is back probably six years ago now when I started. Mm -hmm. And you had to go to the lab to even get it, right? So if you had it, you still had to go somewhere and it was a pain. Or yeah. now you just get up in the morning, put on a little strap or finger sensor, you know, take two minutes to run it through your phone and you're done, right? Yeah. So it's very accurate, which is good. And you can get daily measurements, which is the most helpful. Um, 
Excellent. The third, yeah. The third thing I would say is spend some time trying to be more relaxed or more parasympathetic. You know, that could be a relaxing walk in the evening. That could be just sitting and watching water for a while or, you know, meditation or prayer or reading or just have that be a part of your time. And mm -hmm. the other key there is some type of breathing work and it doesn't have to be anything fancy. We know that if you take longer breaths and you take less frequency, so just slow down and breathe more deep, you're mm -hmm. going to increase parasympathetic tone and you're going to feel more relaxed. Um, yeah. If you have a hard time doing that, you can do things like a float chamber or something like that where they put you in a bunch of salt water and make it dark and you're stuck in there for an hour to two hours. You know, it's kind of forced relaxation. You may not need to go that extreme, um, but I think just having that time to just be more relaxed and then compare that to the rest of your day. Because I think that's the biggest part that people are missing, at least in the US or people I deal with. Uh, the stress part, they're pretty good. Relaxing, recovering from that, you know, not so good. And I know that's something that's taken me quite a while to get better at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that um, <clears throat> we probably should mention too is that uh, whether it's the stress causing lack of sleep or the lack of sleep causing stress, uh, we should also uh, say a word about good sleeping habits, mm -hmm. which would be a lot cheaper than going to a, a hyperbaric uh, chamber or yeah. something like that. Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, what, what would be your recommendation there? I mean, uh, we've gotten recommendations from all sorts of people, so I'm curious yeah, yeah. To, to hear what you... Yeah, the, the couple of things. So the things that I notice with clients that make the biggest change, um, actually the one I stole from Dan Party, getting AM exposure into your eyeballs 20 to 30 minutes per day, so not behind glasses, not behind windows. Um, I've noticed that that makes a huge difference, right? And it doesn't mean go out and, you know, stare at the sun when you're walking, but just, <laughs> you know, get that exposure, even on an overcast day, that the sunlight exposure, the lux outside is way higher than it is indoors. Um, so that'll help kind of reset that circadian rhythm. Um, the other part I've noticed too is people taking uh, melatonin right before they go to bed. So I had someone who would go to bed at 11 and was getting up at six and we kind of went round and round and couldn't figure out what the hell's going on. And I said, okay, do you use any type of supplements? Yeah. I said, I use melatonin. I said, okay, well, how much and when do you take it? She's like, well, I take three milligrams at 11 right before I go to bed. And I'm like, well, three milligrams is probably high, even though it's a common dose. But in essence, you, you're, you're pushing your circadian rhythm super late by doing that. Hmm. So try to use less and try to use it a little bit earlier. So in her case, you know, walk it back about an hour each time. And she's like, well, I'm, I may feel a little bit more tired earlier. So, well, that's kind of the goal, right? Um, a small enough dose of melatonin also is more for resetting uh, circadian rhythms, not so good at uh, making you feel sleepy. Mm -hmm. um, so I found that that, and then the standard stuff, you know, making your bedroom nice and cool and dark, you know, making sure that it's comfortable. Uh, some people are very sensitive to sleep temperature, I've yeah. noticed. Um, I, that can make yeah. a big difference. Um, if it's too loud, just like we usually run a fan at night just for some uh, white noise, things of that nature. Um, one thing I haven't experimented with too much yet, but may is then trying to get light exposure. You can get these alarm clocks that'll actually get brighter in the morning. So it's interesting that we've gone so far to make everything dark that I wonder if we're sleeping maybe a little bit too long in some extreme cases because it's so dark and we don't have that sunlight exposure. So again, that maybe a way to kind of work around it. Um, when I was in Costa Rica, we noticed that because the, the light and dark cycles are very similar throughout the year, mm -hmm. there's just not a lot of exterior uh, lights around there. So when it's dark, it's pretty dark. I mean, you can put lights on inside, but it's not like walking around in cities here where it's just, you know, lit up. And everyone reported the same thing that they're like, oh my God, we get tired so early, but then yeah. we get light sooner and they would be more awake in the morning. Um, so I think the, the light is probably the biggest uh, regulator of that. Mm. Super. Well, it's been great, the information you've given us. Um, really interesting. I've been uh, thrilled, I must admit. Oh, well, yeah, thank, thank you, you guys time. very much for having me. I really appreciate it. This is a, a fun conversation.
Absolutely, absolutely. So um, ready for the closing then? Indeed. Indeed. So here we go. Thank you again, Mike, for being on the Local Paleo Show. And as we say in Texas, à votre santé, y'all. Yes, thank you very much. Greatly appreciate it. It was fun. Excellent.